This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, my guest is Tandega Tutu Klasha. She is both my aunt and the CEO of the Desmond Tutu Tutu Desk Campaign Center, a charitable educational organization which addresses the 95 million desk shortage in sub-Saharan Africa. She has been named one of the Global 100 Real Leaders by Real Leaders Magazine and a Social Impact Heroine by Authority Magazine. Here's our conversation. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Tandega Tutu Glasher. Just kidding. Mamkulu. <laughs> Thank you. So the, I'm so excited. <laughs> the first question I want to ask you is one that I ask all of my guests and um it has to do with something that your sister said, and she said that, you know, our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as people. So I want to ask you to tell us what is missing from your resume that you think people should know. Um, I thought about that question um, a little bit and, and realized that, that she's right in a sense. I mean, the re- resume really talks about your professional life. It doesn't talk about you uh, in your personal or friend life or um, doesn't talk about your, um, your being a mother and a, a wife and a friend, we hope, to, uh, and an aunt to, to people. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't talk about your relationships. It tells you about mm-hmm. what you can do and what you have experience in doing, um, which is just a tiny part of what your full life really is. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of, you know, what you have done and what you do, your background is in public health and clinical research. What drew you to these fields? Well, um, perhaps like many people, the field you actually end up in is prop is possibly not the field you had thought you were going to um, be in, and I had for the longest wanted to be a doctor, and I had gone to medical school, and in the middle of the coursework, I had I had I had failed some exams, and then I had moved on to somewhere else and and tried again and had not completed medical school. And so then I um, went into public health. I did a master's in public health at at Emory in Atlanta. And in a way, it was um, a second choice um, because being a doctor 
was kind of my first choice and that didn't happen. And so you pick yourself up and you kind of think about what it is you can do or what you are able to do when your first choice is no longer available to you. And I wanted to stay in the health sector. And so clinical research and um, and, pub- and, and being in the public health se- sphere um, basically fulfilled that uh, need. So, you know, you did your research um, in the field of pediatric HIV AIDS. Um, was that hard to do? You know, what's, what's the hardest thing about that work? And then what in that work kept Actually, you going? Actually, I started research in, um, in adult patients. And then my second um, kind of research project was in pediatrics. But it was to do with children who are born with a deformed intraocular lens. You know, one of the eyes, one of the lenses in the eyes is, is deficient. And there were two possible treatments. One was um, replacing that, you know, the lens in the eye with a contact lens. And the other was actually operating and um, removing that and putting in a new lens. That particular study, which was a pediatric study, um, actually showed me that I do not want to do any research, medical research in pediatric. The thing that that taught me was that you are so, the, the child on whom the study is being done is so dependent on what the adult in their lives um, do. Because part of the treatment was that they ha- you, in order for that damaged eye to grow, you have to um, have a, a um, what do they call, you know, what this uh, pirate, um, you have to blind the eye for several hours a day. And that's very, very difficult to, you know, to have a young child and keep them with an eye patch on. And, but you need a very dedicated mother to do that. And the, the results of that research showed so clearly when mothers kind of gave up on the patch. Maybe the child was finicky and, you know, but the mothers who actually did what they were meant to do, those children kept their eyes. So, you know, you you spoke about how you wanted to be a doctor, and I wonder if who your father was when you were growing up had, you know, any sort of bearing on what you wanted to be when you grew up. I've wondered about that a lot, and I think partly wanting to be a doctor was because that was his dream. He had wanted to be a doctor when he was young, um, but then, you know, circumstances, they didn't have enough money to send him to medical school and all of that um, happened. And so he never went into the field of medicine, and, but he's always loved that field so much. And I think perhaps in a way I was wanting to help fulfill his dream. That makes sense, you know. I was I was I was I was going to ask, you know, what kind of pressure do you put on yourself to carry on 
the legacy in your own way. And so it sort of sounds like it was it was a subconscious pressure that you put on yourself to carry on the legacy, not necessarily in the sense of, you know, going and becoming a priest, but carrying on something that was close to him. And and there again, I think there's also an element of um, for perhaps fulfilling a, a part of my father's or my parents is that because not a well some people do but know that in their professional lives they started out their professional lives as teachers both of them and then when Bantu education came into um, being they left teaching my father went into the ministry and my mom became a nurse and um, and so in the run-up to have, you know, all of these foundations and, and uh, when legacy projects, there are so many legacy projects that have to do with peace and reconciliation and, you know, da-da-da-da this and, uh, you know. Um, but there were not many legacy projects in the education field. And I think perhaps deep down in his heart, my dad is still a, a teacher. Um, he was an English teacher and he will, as you know, continually, um, you know. Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he will continually uh, correct your, your, either your pronunciation or the way you put a sentence together and, you know. And, and things like that, you know, he does that all the time. And so I thought that there was, you know, there, there were not many or there weren't any educational legacy projects in his or in their, their names. And Tutu Desk kind of fulfills that uh, gap that I see. And uh, Tutu Desk actually started out as um, an organization called Lap Desk because that's basically what it is. It um, looks like an artist palette. It's kind of like a tray-shaped, um, artist palette-shaped um, kind of plastic board and is, has um, educational material um, painted on, on the one side of it. And it's handed out to kids in places where they don't have desks. And if you know, um, when you try to, if you try writing on your lap, uh, take a piece of paper and try writing on your lap, how uncomfortable and that actually is. And, and so you can imagine if you have to go through your whole school day, either writing on your lap or writing on the floor or trying to write on a friend's back, that it can't be very good for your um, um, your ethnic educational improvement, and and so if we consider um, education um, being literate, um, being the ability to read and to write, if the right part of that equation is not completed properly, then what you do is you churn children out of school who are basically semi-literate. And that has major consequences for, um, for children, for, for their 
for them in particular as they try to move on in and and onward and upward in education and try and once they move out of there uh, to try and get into the workforce and um and and impacts them their families their communities their cities their countries and to a large extent the continent so if i mean the sub saharan africa has more than 95000 95000 million children who go to school without the benefit of a desk now it's not only a um an african problem it's globally the figure rises to about 500 million because it's the same situation in south america in in um in 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 parts of asia um that the children don't have the simple simple infrastructure to help them move forward in um and move them onward and upward in their education you, i'm going to i want to come back to tutu desk but i do want to ask you know i obviously know that i am your favorite niece but apart from that <laughs> Is there someone in our family alive or dead who has motivated you to do the work that you do and you know live the life that you live now? I think uh, a great motivator for me is my grandmother, my paternal grandmother. She wasn't a very educated um lady, but she was married to a school principal and she ensured that her children got an education. and the thing about her was that she she loved cooking and feeding people and i think i take after her in in that way is that it's um it's a it's it fills a a need i guess um when you are able to 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 feed people and to make them smile because you've given them a dish um and, and for a short time you know um community um i think she was a community builder um in her own way and i would hope that um somewhere in my dna there's that one wanting to care for and um lift up the underdog and give them um space and um and and a hearing well so speaking of the underdog you know we all have our our tough moments and so is there a quote or a phrase or some sort of belief or faith that sustains you in these moments and and what is that if so um the one is is from Nelson Mandela everybody wants to quote Nelson Mandela but i really do <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know i <laughs> but the one quote that i always um stick to or or, or get um sustenance from um that he said is it always seems impossible until it's done mm so that's that's the one because that that to me is 
you, it's keep on keeping on, uh, basically. Um, it, you know, the road may be hard, the, um, the work may be almost impossible, but it, once it's done, you'll look back and think, but those weren't really hurdles, it was just little blocks in the road and, you know. And then the other one is um, from your granddad. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't particularly like um, quoting him uh, a lot because, it's, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the one that, uh, that does give me hope and sustenance and um, is do your little bit of good um, where you are because it's those little bits of good that when you put them together, overwhelm and make the world a better place. Right. Could you could you explain what the handovers are and, and all the places that you've traveled for them? Is there one that's had a lasting impact on you? Um, well, the handovers are basically where we gift uh, a tutu desk to a child. And when you go to the schools... Um, or or the areas where you are handing over these the 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 tutu desks. Each child in that school will get a, a tutu desk, and will be which will belong to them, and which they take home with them. Because if you are in a school where there are no desks, it's very likely you are living in a home where there is no place for you to do your own home to you know a separate space for you to do homework and and so the the tutu desk is given to the child so that they actually it, it belongs to them and they can take it home and use it at home and then bring it back and and use it at school and so when we do this gifting it's a big uh, celebration at the school and also in the community because a lot of the time community members some of the parents come to to the handover um the chief in the village and and um the district education people um usually come unfortunately they're all very similar in the depth of um the lack that they show, but some sc schools lack more than others. I mean, we've been to schools where half half the roofs were missing. The you know it's like potholes in the cement of the classroom. Um, so when it rains, you know, rain pours into the classroom, and you know, and the children are all squeezed into one corner of. I mean, the conditions are abominable. And it's a really sad reflection on our country that 25 years in, in, into um, dem democracy that our children are living in or are going to school in conditions that in many ways, are actually even worse than when my father went to school 70 years ago. So it's an indictment on, on, on 
us as a nation and our government in particular. Well, then also, how how has COVID-19 affected Tutu Desk? Well, the one thing is we're, we're, we're not allowed in the schools. Um, and, and so um, a lot of the schools were closed anyway for a long period of time. But the, and the unfortunate thing about uh, COVID-19 was it exacerbated the inequities in our society. And so children in towns and, uh, and places where there were Wi-Fi and who had computers, actually their education kept on going because, you know, they were having classrooms online. But most of the places where I am, I mean, if you, if you, if you don't have desks, you're highly unlikely to have computers and, um, and iPads and, and notebooks. Um, and, and so that was the case. So for many, many months, a lot of our, you know, the, the children in, in, in the poor um, sections of our country had, had no, no education at all. And what we're trying to do with the um, education department now is we're trying to help them give more children um, to tutors because it helps actually with, um, with the, you know, social distancing because the desks that they, that some do have are desks which are shared. And so, you know, so a desk which was meant to sit two people usually would sit three or four. But now with social distancing, they are meant, you know, you're meant to only have one child at a desk. So now there are even few, fewer children with desks. So the three million children who didn't have desks in South Africa has now turned into um, something like four, four million just because of trying to get that social distancing and that the spatial uh, distancing in the within the classrooms, so we're we're working with them, but it's uh, it's going to be a long hard road. Thinking of long hard roads, you know, I whenever we bring friends to um, to SA from the US, you know, they always remark on how how much joy they see in South Africans, and. You, you know, they're always wondering how how can people in the townships be so joyful? And so I, I wonder, what do you think allows South Africans to hold on to, you know, a sense of joy throughout, whether it's poverty or, you know, you and my mom experiencing apartheid? Like how what allows South Africans to hold on to joy in these difficult experiences? Mungi, if I knew, I would probably get a Nobel Prize for something or other. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think part of it is the, um, one, the ability to laugh and laugh at yourselves and laugh with each other and the importance that music and song is um, to the people of our country. I'm, you know, I, I think if you are able to lift your voice in song, even in the midst of uh, trouble, 
um, it doesn't take the trouble away, but it helps you bear the trouble um, so much more than if you're walking around doom and gloom and, you know, oh, woe was me, um, because that doesn't really change anything. But having said that, um, the government shouldn't take that um, for granted because the young people of today are not going to sing and dance and laugh about their conditions because now our constitution demands that they be treated as equal citizens. Well, then with that, there are two questions that I want to ask you before we close out. And the first one is, what is your greatest fear for humanity and, and what kinds of things are you doing to help stop this fear coming to pass? I think my, my greatest fear is that young people will become more and more radicalized, um, particularly young people who are living in poverty and in in distress, particularly in lands where there used to be um, racial inequalities, and 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 then you 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 got a a change in government and change constitution like we have here and like people in Zimbabwe, um, and that as they become more and more radical, then they become more prepared to fight. I really would not like to live in a war zone. And some people already are to a certain extent. Um, and so I think it's on us and on our government to change direction before our whole world is overtaken by completely um, radicalized youth um, who, who don't see a future for themselves. So then what would you say is your greatest hope for humanity? Greatest hope um, is that COVID has, um, in a, as, has, in a sense, given us a chance to pause and reset. And, um, and you know, pause and take a look at ourselves. Um, and so in the context of South Africa, the pause and looking at ourselves was showing how deep our inequalities really are in this country. And that the pause is, is going to allow us to reset and remake our country, our continent, our world into one um, that is more equitable that there is opportunity for, for all our children, that education is not just um, 
something nice to have for the a good education is not a nice to have just for the rich and um, and the middle class, but is essential for everyone to have. When um, one of the things that they did that we did um, with Tutu Desk was um, AusAid, which is the Australian equivalent of USAID, was um, an impact study to see to see the about the efficacy of of um, of of Tutu Desk, and one of the uh, things that came out of it, you know, it, it showed that reading skills went up, you know, children giving in their homework went, shot up to over 80%. Um, teachers found, the, you know, that their classes were were easier to handle, that they were more orderly. Um, you know, all of those things, uh, writing skills were, were improved. All of those things were what we'd hoped to find. But one of the things that came out of it that kind of blindsided everybody, which we had not really anticipated, was that what they found was that when tutu desks were brought into a community and taken to schools in, in, in that particular community, one of the things that happened was that young boys who had dropped out of school because the conditions in the schools were so arduous making learning so difficult. And so a lot of boys tend to drop out, um, much more so than girls do. But a lot of boys who had dropped out of school started coming back to school. And so my question is, is that if those boys were not in school, where are they and what are they doing? And that's the scary question for me is what is the real answer to that where are they and what are they doing and my hope is that our our reset looks at things like that about where are the young boys or where are the young children who are not in school and what are they doing who is leaving an impression on their minds and how to carry themselves in the world that they live or negotiate life in the in this world of ours. Mm. Well, Mamkulu, thank you very much for speaking with me today and coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. So welcome, Mungi, my favorite niece. You heard it here first. <laughs> it was such a joy to be here with you. You're such a darling. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.